You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, that's Micha. Hi, I'm here with Neil Fleischman, who was introduced to me by a mutual friend of ours who's been on this program, Mark Gottlieb. Neil, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, and I know that uh, you're going to talk about something that means a lot to you. And it's a movie, it's a book. Uh, and in our pre-recording uh, discussion, we mentioned how this movie doesn't seem to come up that often. It doesn't seem to be available that readily. Uh, we hope people are going to search it out, especially after we talk about it tonight. And it's something that you've written about uh, on your blog spot, which is called NY's Funniest Rabbi. Uh, it's on the tree of heaven, Francie and me. Most people aren't going to know what that means <laughs> if they just hear that. But of course, the tree of heaven is the tree, the Olympus tree, that is the metaphor in Betty Smith's 1943 super bestseller at the time, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which was a, a book that was a, a sensational bestseller. It was the Harry Potter, I guess, of its time in a way, but beyond. I guess everybody was reading it. Uh, there were editions published everywhere. Everybody was reading it. It was super popular. And the studios were really ready to try to make a, uh, uh, a film out of it. Um, and you're going to talk a little bit. Well, I'm gonna, you're going to talk about it, and I'll ask you about the book and the film. I have to tell you that um, the first time I heard about this, uh, and it's, it's it's mentioned on the Wikipedia page, but I, I remember it clearly because uh, every Sunday morning I spent many many hours watching the great Looney Tune cartoons uh, with Bugs, of course, outwitting everyone. And there was one Looney Tunes cartoon where where Bugs. Bugs Bunny, that is, uh, had the uh, somehow he was being chased. I don't know who was who unleashed these dogs at him. Maybe it was Elmer Fudd. Maybe it was Porky. I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Daffy. But somehow the way that Bugs saves himself is by taking a book out of his pocket and the books and he points the book at him and all the dogs start running away and running away into some netherland. And then Bugs points the book to the to the camera that everybody should see what it is and it's a tree grows in Brooklyn and that's the big joke because of course in the 40s even the, the great Vilda Chayas that were the people of the Warner Brothers cartoons they could only hint to what dogs do on trees right <laughs> and that was supposedly this incredibly funny thing and I remember seeing this when I was about seven or eight years old and I, I and that's what got me interested really in finding out what this book was a tree grows in Brooklyn and, and about a year or so later, I picked the book up and, and I had it in my house and I started, but I never got through it. But I know the book means a lot to you. So why don't you talk about the book and the, the film adaptation? Thank you, Avram. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, I'm glad that the cartoons got you to find the book. They got me to find classical music. Cartoons really do uh, sure. educate children. They That's really, right. At least in the old days, they did. By the way, the reason why classical music was used, because there was no copyright issues on it. Uh, so that's the reason why they could use that music without having to pay any royalties. But yeah, that's right. That's right. So, yeah, I find both the book and the movie to be incredible, and they complement each other. I actually discovered the movie first, and I just found it to be so literary, so subtle, so beautiful there's so much in it 
And then I read the book and I found, of course, this is usually the case. The book has even more. I have an unusual habit. I like reading books after I see the movie because then it's like a commentary on the the movie. When you see the movie after the book, you're almost always disappointed. When you read the book after, if you could be open to imagining it in new ways, you get the internal dialogue and the thoughts and much more story and much more background. Wow. And doesn't it spoil it for you? I remember I had this experience um, when I started reading Dashiell Hammett. And the only reason I started reading Dashiell Hammett was because I had seen the Maltese Falcon. So now I said, well, let me read Dashiell Hammett. And I couldn't get Bogart out of my head and Mary Astor. And it it bothered me that that when I was reading the book, those were the people I was seeing there. And sometimes they weren't even described by the author in the same way. When you were reading the book, did you... Did you see, um, uh, you know, Dorothy McGuire as Katie or or you were able to expunge that from your head? Yeah, I think for me, I'm able to to broaden it. You know, it's it's a narrower vision of it. And now all of a sudden, I feel like I'm being told the truth. The book describes (laughs) much better what they look like. And I take their word for it. It's not, you know, who they made it be in the movie. You know, in fact. I read that they didn't want uh, McGuire in the in the movie. She was too glamorous, they thought, too young. She wasn't even that much older than her daughter in the movie. Technically, like she she would have had her like fifteen if she was was her mother. Um, and and they try to make her look more gritty, wore down. But the book makes it clear who they are. The book wipes out the movie for me and gives a much clearer picture. Mm-hmm. Um, Although the movie in certain ways adds things also. Um, I'll talk a little about some examples. There's there's one scene in the book that I love that didn't make the movie. A lot did not make the movie. Um, the oh, book, well, yeah. Neil, Neil, before we start, let's just tell our listeners who aren't familiar with it. They, oh. don't, even, they don't even know Bugs Bunny. The book okay. is basically about uh, sure. a coming-of-age story. Yes. It's semi-autobiographical. I don't know much about who Betty Smith was. But it seems like she did come from immigrant parents. Um, parents, one side was Austrian German, the other side was Irish. Um, they they lived the hard scrabble immigrant life of the turn of the century, New York, specifically Brooklyn, and um, and and they were really really assailed by poverty. And it's really the story of her resilience and her commitment, and the story of her relationship with her parents and how she grows. I think the book is only, although it goes backwards a little bit when it talks about the courtship of the parents and what was life as soon as they got over from the old country, it really is only in in Francie's life, the main character, the protagonist, who I guess sees as the main character, it's only about five or six years or seven years of her life. It is five or six years, which is interesting because the movie really sticks to just one year, Hmm. really truncates it. Maybe that's because they they didn't want to get too many actresses involved playing her. That could be. Also, I, I feel like if it was made today, it might be one of these epics on TV that's like an eight-parter because it really, the whole book would need a lot, a lot more time. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, yeah. So, so talk. So now, now that we know, I gave you a little yeah. sketch of the book. So talk about yeah. why the book speaks to you so much. Right. So that's the sketch of it. You know, she's from this Irish Catholic family, and I just related to her. She's an introverted kid. 
She's poetic, artistic, creative. She's in the middle of a project. She goes to the library and she asks for books the librarian does not want to give her. But she explains she's going through the whole library alphabetically. So mm-hmm. she's trying to read everything, <laughs> and she does. And she sits by the eponymous tree. And the tree is like a metaphor for her wanting to reach the sky. And um, and she reads and reads. And she really connects to her father, who's a poetic, flawed soul. Um, I just want to say one one part in the book that's not in the movie that really touches me. She notices Jewish people around in Brooklyn at the time. They're not shown in the in the movie, as far as I remember. But in the book, she noticed a lot of them. She notices a lot of married Jewish women that are pregnant. And she notices the men, the women, the children. She asks her mother one day, what's the difference between being an Irish Catholic and being a Jewish person? And her mother says the difference is that the Jewish people believe that the Messiah has not yet come and will come one day. And we Irish Catholics believe that he came and he's going to come back. So Francie says, now I understand. Whenever I see Irish Catholic women that are pregnant, they seem very unhappy. They must be unhappy because they know they can't give birth to the Messiah. <laughs> but the Jewish women are so happy because they have uh, hopes that their child will be the Messiah. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's great. That's a great line. It sounds like Betty Smith actually that she might have taken that from her own mother's. Very uh, much. I, I think so. I think a lot of it comes from her comes from her own experiences. One thing that I love that comes from her experiences that's not in the book, but around the book, is when she was a child, she wrote an author that she venerated, and she didn't hear back, and she was heartbroken. So she took it on herself. When she wrote the book and it became popular, she answered every single letter, however many thousands there were. And I'm sure there were. Um, yeah. What's interesting, I think, in, in, in the book and in the movie is that, you know, you have these, you know, the, the women characters are very strong, very, like, both Katie, uh, the mother, and Francie, they are the determined ones. Uh, they are the ones that really, and even, you know, we'll talk about Sissy in a minute, too. Yes. Uh, but these these characters, unlike what the typical, you know, set sense of where women are, and, and even in the film that we're going to talk about later, the, the one that's coming up, these women are, are different. These women are, the men are the ones who are sort of, in, in some ways, failures, uh, especially, you know, failures, as you say, in a tragic way, but the women are the determined ones. They're the ones they are going to push through. They're the ones with strength. But what's yeah. interesting is, is that because they, they both have such strength, Katie and Francie, but there's a sense in the book and the movie that she doesn't love her daughter as much as she loves mm. her son, Neely. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's quite striking that they don't seem to be able to exist in that on an emotional wavelength that they share. Yeah. There are moments that I can try to compensate for that, where she shows her daughter how much she loves her, how much she needs her. At the, at the very end of the movie, spoiler alert, yeah. um, she, she has another child. Right. The father has tragically passed away. And there's this wonderful man who just wants to marry her and, and take care of her and her family. And that's, 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 that's played by, in, in, the, in the movie, I remember that's Lloyd Nolan. 
who plays yes. in the movie. Yes. yes. Funny because his name is Nolan and, and yes. uh, that is uh, the character. Yes. The character he's very Irish. He's also oh, fits in. Yeah, Louis Nolan was a great character actor. You can find him in a lot of yeah. a lot of good films. You're right. As you said, Dorothy McGuire was one of her first films too. She, of course, teamed up with Kazan. I mentioned this to you when we spoke about it uh, two years later in a role that I think is incredible um, in Gentleman's Agreement, yes. where she actually... Uh, she actually does discover what is the Gentiles' relationship to Jews when right. she discovers that she protects her. And as far as yeah. I remember from the book, one of the ways she protects her is something that the that they couldn't get past the Hayes Code, yes. which was that it sounds like there's some guy was a guy who breaks in somebody who's a, a, an attempted rape. She, she takes a strike at him and runs away, is uh-huh. how I remember. And it's been known in the neighborhood there's someone lurking, and he gets her like in a stairway and. And she's shocked, and the mother really takes care of her there. Right. You know? right. It's funny. Again, sometimes, like, maybe pre-code, they could have done that. And, and maybe that could have really brought out how much she really cared for her. But I guess right. the, the movie didn't want didn't to, like, put even the, the, the sense yeah. of, right. And, and th- does the movie deal, in the book, Francie actually deals with her romance? Does that, hap- does that happen in the movie at all? Nope. <laughs> it's trunk. It's it, the story ends before that. The story ends with the father dying, and and the mother begs them to not write that it was from alcoholism. Well, and well, they agree. Well, what was the reason? I I don't remember exactly because I haven't seen the movie in years. Uh, but what was the? I I know that somehow it's like a big shock that she's pregnant again, and somehow that drives him more into alcoholism and depression. What's the connection, Neil, between between yeah. the between the two? Did you ever figure that out? Yeah, sure. He's a dreamer and she's practical. And he makes dreams come true in a way, but then in a way they don't come true and she has to deal with it. So he has his dream come true of being out singing every night, being friend of everyone in the neighborhood, but he's not earning money. He's getting drunk and she's cleaning the stairs in the building for pay. And then they they reignite their romanticism. Instead of having the whole flashback that the book has of when they met, they just they talk about it and they reimagine it. And and it's implied that they're that they're intimate and uh and you know she gets pregnant again. But the thing is it's too much for him. He loves his children, he loves his wife, but caring for someone else, he feels so guilty about it. And even though she loves him. She drives him hard. She drives him hard. So, and she reminds him, and so I, I guess I'm missing the point. And you can help me. Sure. I know you're trying to be delicate. Sure. Once he discovers that through their romance that she's impregnated, that she's going to have a baby, he now realizes that she's not going to be able to be the main supporter because she's going to have to take off work to care for the baby. Well, he never wants her to be the main supporter. He wants to do it and it's daunting and it just becomes more daunting. Mm-hmm. And they talk about that as I recall it, you know, what are we going to do? What could she do? What could he do? But it's just, it's just another weight on him. It's just another weight. But it, it sounds so terrible, Neil. You would think, yeah. you would think the fact that obviously this was a relationship that had its ups and downs, a lot of downs, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, recriminations if they were able to like like as you say get the spark going and uh, and producing a child you would think that would allow um johnny the father played by james dunn in an academy award-winning performance uh, to um 
to sort of like say, yeah, maybe I can be something. Um, right. It's interesting that, that, that it, it, the book really subverts expectations. Instead of saying, oh, you see, maybe we are, we do have a, a promise and this child's going to be different. It actually causes Johnny to revert back and say, I can't change. And I'm so yeah. depressed that I can't change. He drinks himself to death. Yeah. Well, one of the strengths of the movie is that you just see things clearly. You just see that he has this pattern. When he makes money, he drinks the money. He doesn't mean to, but that's what happens. And it's hard for him to fulfill dreams. Another thing the movie shows so clearly is how dirt poor they are. The mother teaches them like tricks. When you go to the butcher, ask for the meat, but here's a way you get a little more. You know, they, they go searching for coins in the street, things like that. And... um Part of what I think what the one of the themes in the book is that you and, and I think that's part of what what America needed to hear was that don't judge people in poverty the same way you expect the Norman Rockwell morality of everyone else. You do need to lie a little bit. You do need other. Yeah. There's such an unfairness. There's such a, a difference between the haves and the have nots. that yes. There's got to be a little bit of uh, of of, as you say, you know, skimming the butcher a little bit. Otherwise, yeah. you're not going to yeah. make it. Yeah. There's a scene where she's walking with her father and they walk into a nicer, wealthier neighborhood and she sees a school and she wants to go there. And they start thinking seriously, maybe she can go there. And the mother says, that's crazy. But he comes up with a fake address and gets her to go to the school. And she's in the school and her dream comes true. So, right. so, which again, and in some some ways, you would feel she should get punished for the lie. Right. But, but, but I think Betty Smith was writing about the fact this is what it means to be poor, and yes. un, and unless you take some sort of advantage, you're never going to be able to make. Ship between the mother and daughter. I was starting to say that when she does connect with her daughters when she's giving birth. She says, bring me a towel. Uh, she helps. Water. Francie, Francie yeah. helps with the and birth. And Francie says, you know, well, you don't need me. She says, I do need you. I do need you. Um, Neely is, you know. So, Neil, just, uh, just. Yeah, sure. That's so beautiful because it yeah. turns out that they bond over the essence of womanhood. Mm -hmm. Even even though what Katie, like in the book, uh, Katie, when there's a question about who's going to go to high school, um, and I don't know if that's right. a movie as well. Yeah, she, it is. Was, Yes. So she she says Neely is going to go because right. once they get a little bit of money or whatever it was from his death, she says, let's send Neely to school because you're going to be able to get to school no matter what. Right. You're like right. me. And, right. and, and, and and not only in personality, but especially that moment of when the new baby is born, that Francie was able to to help her mom. She sees that this is the bond between women. That 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 even yeah. as my father used to say, Sometimes when you speak it out, it becomes cheap. You don't, you, you don't need to say I love you and I this. Right. But the relationship is there. Talk about Neely, and then we'll talk about Sissy. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is they can't afford a, a Christmas tree. I hope I can say that word here. And uh, tree, and um, they go to this place where they throw away some of the lesser trees, they throw them in the air. And if you can catch it, then you get to keep it. And Neely and, and, and Francie work together and they catch this nice big tree and they bring it home. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the last nice times the family has together. Um, he's not a dreamer. So I'm more 
my favorite characters are the are are the father and the daughter because they're just they're beautiful dreamers. He's more of a typical kid, but at the very end of the movie, there's another scene of the two of them saying how their their new little uh, sister is never going to have the struggles they have because now they have more of a a, a straight income. But then they say to each other, she's also not going to have the good times we have. We had such good times together, didn't we? And part of the good times were hard times. So you'd say in the movie, I don't know so much of the book because I don't remember it. But in the the movie, you think he's sort of an underdeveloped character, the brother, in some way. I think so. I think so. You're clearly not going to say underdeveloped when it comes to Sissy, though. Sissy is... is No, in a way, she's... (laughs) she's, She's played by, really, a Hollywood superstar someone who's really who spawned from the silence and and, and the early talkies uh, a great character actress who oh she played a plucky uh, we on this platform you might you you could everybody can listen to it when we talked about three on a match uh she always plays a certain plucky uh girl with gumption um she's she never plays a highfalutin fancy girl but a woman of me, a woman who understands men, a woman who understands the world without that book learning, but always with a great heart. Um, and in this film, uh, let, let's just emphasize again, although you said they're Irish Catholic um, on her mother's side, which is a lot of where the strength comes, right. the book really develops that they're really Austro-Germany. And there's a lot of that Stolzkeit that we uh, we associate with the Germanic way of looking at things. Right. Um, it, even yeah. to the point, I think that she comes from a household, Katie does the mother, where her father didn't want to speak English. You know, they want to keep, you know, you know, what they are. They're very proud of their German heritage. Right. And, 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 right. and, and, and the girls, I don't know how many of them show up in the movie. I think they only, they don't show the other sisters, right? Right. That's why when you said Neely is, you know, underdeveloped, she's overdeveloped because she's playing all the sisters. She plays, There's another sister in the book and right. here it's all just her. Right. They had to, obviously the film had to compress it. And she, rep, what does she represent for you in the movie? Uh, uh, Sissy played by Joan Blondell. Yeah. She's sort of the sister side of Katie. She's, Another part of Katie, you know, siblings in a way are the closest relationship you can have. You go through the same world. And you're right, it was a specific world. Now I remember that that Katie's mother is in the movie reading to the children. And she is, you know, an old Germanic, like an Oma, you know, grandmother. Mm -hmm. And um, Sissy is full of life. And um, she keeps marrying and remarrying. And she renames every husband Bill. And she's just so full of life. She comes once with the with the to visit the children, and there are skates lying around. And she takes the skates, says, "You could use them." And they start skating, and they get in trouble, and it's a whole to do. But um, she is just full of life. And I also see her as on as on um, the father's side. She talks with Katie and reminds her of why she married him in the first place, of what the connection was in the first place, of what the allure was in the first place. And Katie acknowledges that that she's right. She's sort of like the embodiment of Eros in a way. Yeah, and, and, yeah. And, 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 and so as much as this is not even her relative, it's her brother-in-law, but she helps, helps Katie. And also, as you say, she, Francie uh, has a poetic side, a dreaming side, a romantic side and sissy 
although she's not in any way cultured, but she's right. definitely someone who embraces the world of love and romance. A hundred percent. And life, she gets she gets Francie to to roller skate with uh quote unquote borrowed slash stolen uh, <laughs> um, skates and she gives her a good time. Um, and at some point, Katie banishes her, and then eventually she she takes her back. She well, takes Katie her back. says you're you're a bad influence on my children. Yeah, yeah, but the truth is she's not. <laughs> she's right. not, in my humble opinion. Right. It sounds like really again, you know, it, it's fascinating that Francie is 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 the locus of the story, where it seems that the really the one who's so full of complexity is actually her mom. Her mom seems to be the one that's you know is really full of. Depression yeah. and, and 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 strength and and the way she has to exercise discipline um, and it, it, what would you say you know we talked about this a little bit when we when we were talking about our choices why do you think the the, the film is sort of uh, so little we talked about today now it, what do you think the reason is I mean it, I mean you have you have you have, have Elia Kazan who went on to to direct some of the greatest films on the waterfront. And um, besides Gentleman's Agreement, East of Eden. Ah, yeah. Why do you think the film is really, you know, like it's 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 Neil Fleischman's film, but how come it's not so many other people's films? Yeah. What, what do you think the reason is? Yeah, I have some thoughts. I'm going to sound like a bit of a snob, but um, I think it's very cerebral, very subtle. It doesn't have much humor in it. It doesn't have action in it. It's it's a morality tale. Um, it reminds me a little of of what I read. Why um, Rod Serling did the Twilight Zone of science fiction because he said then I could get people to watch that. Before that, when he was doing uh, theater and it was straight up, people weren't as interested. When he put in a twist, this movie doesn't have a twist like that. It's just it's like a picture of life. Here's this family. They're poor. Oh, who wants to watch that? They're struggling. Oh, who wants to watch that? They've lost the romance. Who wants to watch that? You know, there's somebody, he's a drunk. Oh, drunk. It's so sad. But the drunk is one of the most beautiful people you ever see in any movie or, or anywhere in real life in your life. The struggles, this, this girl loving her father so much, yet knowing he's flawed. In school, in the book, there's a lot about her being bullied. In In the movie there's just one scene where both the teacher and the class laughs at her because they're reading a poem about beauty being truth and she says what if someone's beautiful but they do something that that makes them look ugly and not good and everyone starts laughing at her um but that's her big struggle she knows how how unbelievably beautiful her father is and and she's torn over it but i don't think i mean it's clear people people don't want this story it's not it's not all about Christmas. It's a very small part. It's not, you know, jokey like, uh, you know, a Christmas story. It's not fantastic like, uh, like, um, what's it's it a, called? It's a Wonderful Life. A Wonderful Life, about. yeah, which is, it's, that has more humor in it and it has the sci-fi element, you know, and then there's the Dickens Christmas story, which is just, you know, it also has the fantasy in it. Um, this is just a picture you have to really right. love high art, in my opinion. Even though there are yeah. people who say well, again, the, painting I, museums. I, I, mean, I mean, two 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 films from John Ford uh, come to mind, and they both have a similar type of arc. One, of course, is based on Steinbeck's Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, *The Grapes of Wrath*, 
mm-hmm. and it's a it's it's a it's a it's a movie that is very faithful to the book, and it won Best Picture. I don't, and, and it's also really there again. You basically have, I mean, it does have perhaps a little more uh, drama to it because you're talking about the Okies being driven. Uh, there's also being a person, you know, being killed, uh, you know, and, and other things that goes on. Tom Joad, of course, has to run away because of, right. of, of how he's attacked someone. But it's also pretty much just a, the story of a family and also how green was my valley, which is another film by John Ford about uh, poverty in Ireland, uh, right. in an Irish mining town. I, 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 what I would say, again, it's totally unscientific. Seems to me both of those films seem to have a little more currency than uh, Tree Grows in Brooklyn for some reason, right. and, and 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 maybe it's because it is so compressed. Also, you know, interesting that um, uh, Peggy Ann Cummings, who they gave her a, a, a special Academy Award yeah. for juvenile for juvenile performance, she didn't actually go to many places after that. I, I looked her up. Right. She didn't seem to have much of a. I mean, I guess she played in a number of, of small films. Right. Uh, it's not like like we have Natalie Wood in uh, A Miracle on 34th Street. Right. Actually, you know, becomes a major Hollywood star or, or many other you know, actors or actresses right. on their youth. It's sort of like, you know, it, 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 it sort of doesn't have that, like, or Elizabeth Taylor in National yeah. Velvet, uh, which is also basically the story of a family. Of course, it has the great exciting race in it and other things in it, like right. you say, uh, that this doesn't have. But it's interesting that she, that, you, you felt that she was a wonderful actress in this film. Yeah. It's interesting that she didn't really go on to do much afterwards. Right. And I don't uh, know. maybe yeah. she was just born to play this role. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm sort of waiting sort of waiting to say. Uh and and, and 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 this is a story about Brooklyn in a way, because uh you have the immigrants, you have the, the urban aspect, you yeah. have that that one type of tree, that tree of heaven tree that somehow, as you say, breaks through the concrete and and, and yeah. that's no matter what, it could still grow even with all the impediments about it. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's time to flip to the other film, which is also yeah. mentions one of the boroughs of of New York, uh, Manhattan. Uh, I, I actually feel Neil that a tree grows in Brooklyn is probably a great title for the book and the movie. I don't really like this title, Manhattan <laughs> Manhattan melodrama. It's 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 too generic. It's too generic. It's too alliterative. Oh, and let's put the two M's together. Right. A Manhattan melodrama. It, it almost turns you off when you see the titles. Yeah. Like, I don't want to see a melodrama. Melodrama yeah. is like soap opera. I don't want to see that. Right. Um, but maybe in its time, again, the, the, you needed to come up with an alliteration. Uh, but it actually was a film from 1934. And it's a film, 34 is a very interesting year because it's sort of pre-code, but the Hollywood censors and the writers and the producers sort of know they've gone too far. In the end of the area of the silent films, and then the beginning of the talkies, almost every film had in it what we would call some risque stuff. Um, there would be illusions, there would be wanton women. But they made sure that somehow the, the actresses were in some stage of undress somewhere or something like that. Right. This, this film, which is sort of right before the Hayes Code comes in, is sort of like a way we're going to push back. We aren't going to uh, glorify mobsters, malls. We aren't going to glorify gangsters like some of the earlier talkie films did. Uh, we are actually going to have them featured, 
but we're actually going to impress the morality that we're trying to trying to push. And we're going to try to do it in a, in, in a formulaic way, but in a way that we're going to feature, and I think, you, as you said very well before we started recording, three great star performances. Uh, yeah. At the time, in, in the early 30s, MGM realized that they had uh, a monster star on their hand with Clark Gable. I mean, Clark Gable, every man wanted to be Clark Gable, and every woman wanted to date Clark Gable. Yeah. Uh, Clark Gable was sort of like, yeah, yeah. Um, he and Errol Flynn together, I mean, there's so much machismo there that it's impossible to, to, to measure. So it was, Gable had top billing, but it also featured the pairing in 1934 for the first time of William Powell and, you know, let me say it better. They were together for 14 films, most famously in the Thin Man series, right. uh, which was Dashiell Hammett that we mentioned before. Yeah. Books that I have to tell you, I read The Thin Man after I saw the movie The Thin Man. And again, it spoiled the book for me, I'll tell you. But anyway, <laughs> but, but those two were the, uh, the quintessential couple uh, in the Thin Man series, where the, re- the dialogue was somewhat racy, the repartee was great. There was a, a, a mixing of opposites uh, in a way. Uh, Myrna Loy was in a way a, a, a very uh, beautiful, uh, glamorous type but also with a uh, desire uh, to, 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 to discover and to figure out the, the, what was going on in terms, of the, uh, in terms of the mystery. She would get herself in trouble. And Bill Powell in the movies of The Thin Man was this sort of like guy who had been with the mugs before with the, with, the, with the gangsters and the criminals, but now had become a detective and was sort of a guy that was living off his wife's money, but he was, he was always able to figure everything out. That was the formula. It got a little bit weird with the children, but this film was the first time they ever got together, and it's a very different dynamic. Yeah, too. It was directed by actually the director who was very famous for the film man for the uh, Thin Man films, W. S. Van Dyke, <laughs> Winston. Uh, let me see, Win- Woodbridge Strong Van Dyke the oh, second. Wow. W. W. S. Van Dyke, uh, and this film that he made, he had made Tarzan, the Ape Man before that, but this film. He does a great job. It was actually photographed by the Oscar-winning, probably one of the greatest cinematographers in Hollywood history, James Wong Howe. And, and the film really is a very beautiful one. So it's got, it's got Powell and Loy for the first time, and they do become a couple in the film, and their dynamic is very interesting. And it's got Gable, who starts off as uh, Myrna Loy's boyfriend, um, as, and then she goes over to Powell, but it's really much bigger than a triangle. It really is a story in its time that was considered epic. It starts with the 1904 sinking of the General Slocum ship, which before the Twin Towers was the worst tragedy to ever befall uh, the city of New York in terms of human life loss. Uh, there was a pleasure trip that the boat was taking and wire, if you remember, breaks out on the ship. Um, and, a thou- and, and, and of course, for the people watching this film, it's like 9-11 for us. Uh, you know, it was, the film was made 20, you know, it was made about 30 years later, but right. most people's collective memories, they knew about this event. Right. Are, and, and again, immigrants, because it was basically German immigrants, uh, incredibly on the, the, the movie decided to put a Jewish guy uh, played by George Sidney, Mr. Rosen, 
he's somehow on that boat as well. And if you remember, he, he's wondering why where his son Morris is, I think, and why or Moshe is why where his son Morris is. That his son yeah. Morris is somehow be somewhere on the boat there, and they are being entertained. A group of these Irish and German kids are being entertained by Father Joe. And of course, what's the way a father can entertain everybody? Talking about sports and talking about uh, talking about and, and and the film throughout takes you to various sporting events within New York City, from Madison Square Garden, from a boxing match to a hockey match uh, to a uh, Belmont. The, the movie makes sure to hit a lot of the big play things that makes New York special in the eyes of uh, the rest of the rest of America and the rest of the world. Right. But Anyway, the boat sinks. And of course, this is the framing device that in this terrible tragedy, um, the, uh, the two boys who are Blackie, I believe is one, yes. and, and Jim, Blackie and Jim, they lose their parents. Um, <laughs> I, I think one of the things I need to say is that Blackie as a little boy is played in 1934 by a very young Mickey Rooney who, uh, as you know, of course, became one of Hollywood's biggest stars just a number of years later, playing Andy Hardy and then and, and throughout it, a, a very, very long career. We've talked about him before. Uh, he was in National Velvet as well with Elizabeth Taylor. Um, so Mickey Rudy is blacky. Obviously, his hair was blacked up in order to play that part. And you can see that he's the scamp. He's the one who's even on the boat trying to, to somehow cheat all the other uh, cheat all the other little boys and somehow make some money and somehow get ahead. And his friend, who sort of goes along with him, but is a little more noble, uh, Jim, I don't know who the child who plays him, he's on the boat. Uh, as I said, once it sinks, they lose their parents. And Mr. Rosen, played by George Sidney, who played a Jew consistently in, in, in so many Hollywood films, he somehow is on the shore. And when he sees these boys, and, and he sees how his own child has died, and he sees these boys without parents, what wells up within him is a theme that I think the movie embraces, which in the 1930s, before World War II, was a very strong one, was that really all America is very similar. And the immigrant, all the immigrants can come together. And he says, no, he says, I'll be your father. And if you remember, uh, Blackie, played by Mickey Rooney, says, but Mr. Rosen, I'm not a Jew I and Jim's not a Jew. He says, Jew, Catholic, Protestant, we're all the same. We all are, we all, we are Americans. That's what's important, which of course is one of the codas of the film. By the way, he doesn't last long in the film, just, but he also dies nobly because yeah. he, he stands- Over that exact point. Right, he stands up because the film, uh, and again, uh, Van Dyke using a lot of the, the methods of showing time going by, uh, a, a couple of years later, there's a, a rally for a communist rally where a Trotskyite maybe is speaking about how, how important it is to bring revolution for the workers and how people are oppressed here. And it should be like it's what's happening in Russia. And he stands up and says, I came from Russia. In Russia, we had poverty. In Russia, we couldn't do anything. In Russia, you can never be anything. I don't want to be like Russia. America is much greater. And of course, he gets... Uh, he gets attacked, and when, when it turns into a riot, uh, he gets trampled and killed. And at that moment, uh, Blackie uh, is, is crying over his adoptive father, his adoptive Jewish father, and he says, I'm going to get them. I'm going to get them. 
And although as the movie develops, Blackie turns into the same, the scamp turns into a gambler and turns into a ladies' man and, and ends up really hobnobbing with the worst elements, that, ele that aspect that there's a sense of morality in him, that the, the bad guys should be punished and that good people should be elevated, um, although he's living sort of similar to, I guess, to, uh, you know, uh, Johnny's character in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, he knows that he's bad. He knows that he's wrong in many ways. He's drawn to something that he can't really get out of, but there's an inner part of him that knows what real good is. And that is, uh, that's shown by Gable. And right in the beginning, when, and again, that's why I want to say, nobody would ever expect Mickey Rooney to grow up to be Clark Gable. <laughs> That that could never happen. I was like, it, it, it stretches complete. Like, could you imagine Mickey Rooney? And now here he is as an adult. Okay, but anyway, part of as you remember in one of the first scenes that you see Gable, um, he's 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 running an illegal gambling joint, and they they they've paid off the police. This is a corrupt uh, nineteen end of the nineteen twenties or nineteen thirties, beginning nineteen thirties United States, where prohibition is a joke. The cops are all paid off. Um, everybody knows that the gamblers are being lionized and, 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 and you can get away with anything. So before the raid, which is not really a raid, occurs, um, Gable is, is accused, uh, Blackie is accused of running a crooked card game. And he says, okay, it's crooked? You think so? Look, how much did you lose? And he gives him back all his money. <laughs> and he gives it back to him. He's there. You can go right now if you want. Take the money. You say it was crooked. I'll grant you it might have been crooked. Here, take the money back. But the guy stays anyway. Right. So ends up getting the and he ends up getting the yacht because yeah. of that. He ends up, but, but but the point though is is that you see that he isn't just like some, you know, like Marlon Brando's character in The Godfather, where the idea is, yes, gangsters or Tony Soprano later, the gangsters have a, a sense of their own morality. He's really, in a way, he still has that morality from the boat he still has that morality that 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 papa rosen had put in him although it's really in, in a way blanketed by his good looks blanketed by the life that he has blanketed by the fun that he has and part of that fun is the fact that he believes he has a good woman now hollywood have to be very careful here as you know uh after the hayes code all these mobster models became singers <laughs> they all became entertainers as opposed to call girls or just women that were just basically sleeping with their with their bosses, right? They all had to have some sort of uh, role. In this film, Myrna Loy is nothing except a gangster's mom, and basically living off of the sort of the ill-gotten gains that uh, that Black is able to bring her. And the film right away, although she he shows her this beautiful yacht, and they sort of make love on the yacht and look how beautiful it is she realizes how empty this is because there's really no, like she wants something more. And, and the film indicates that, that this is something better that even a, a girl who's a mobster's mom senses that the ride can only go so far with the yacht, the caviar, you want something stable. You want something that you want something that allows you to have children to, to see something beyond yourself. And although Gable sort of hears that he, he doesn't want to, he, he, he doesn't want to stop her and she leaves him. Uh, but, but only, only, but that only happens when she, uh, uh, he creates at a boxing match, I believe, 
a, a, a meeting between Blackie, who's always late, and he says, I'll meet you at the match, and she ends up meeting his best friend, Jim. And Jim has become uh, a lawyer, uh, uh, and he's running for district attorney, and um, they meet. And Jim finds, even though this is a girl from the street, so to speak, a girl who's a mobster's mall, she, can't, she loves hearing what he has to say because he's going to fight against the crooked cops. He's going to clean up the city. Um, and he, he stuck to his principles no matter what. And even though those principles are old-fashioned and those principles are out of vogue, he, and she finds in his, his passion and in his intelligence and also the fact that he's so William Powell. <laughs> he's so not smug about it. He's not like Lawrence Olivier giving a speech. He's, he's, he does it with wit. He does it with charm. Um, you never get the sense that he's a blowhard, just just you know spouting uh, at, at, you know the holier than thou aphorisms. He's it, it, Powell was an, a great actor, really a, a, one of Hollywood's kings in many ways, as the great Ziegfeld, My Man Godfrey, um, in, in, in so many films, including all the way to Mr. Roberts and other films that he made in the 50s. Powell was uh, incredibly, he lived a very long life, but Powell's charm, it, it's not like Gable's uh, powerful, sort of like virile charm, mm -hmm. but, but they both are very charming, very appealing characters, as, as is Myrna Loy. She's really allowed to shine, um, especially the, the great cinematography. Now, what happens again, as, you, as I've sort of set up, is that um, she becomes connected to um, and marries eventually this rising district attorney, Jim Wade. And what, what happens, and this is really never really understood by anyone except you, the people watching it, that Gable becomes a little bit worse when he, leave, when he loses this woman. She might have been a mobster's mall, but she had a hashpa on him. She had some sort of connection. He was in many ways around the criminals, the best of the criminals, but he didn't necessarily descend completely into their world. And there's a scene, of course, where this is brought out, where there's a guy who's welching on all his deals. He won't pay any of his gambling debts. He's trying to push everybody away. But in, in reality, he's making money hand over fist and some illegal stuff. Um, so Gable sets up, Blackie sets up a situation where he's able to get this guy to think he's coming to a card game, but really he's coming to be assassinated or pay up or, or die. And he says to him, you, you're not going to kill me. No, you don't do that. You're not a killer. He says, you know, there was a time when that was true. Mm. But I've become different now. And part of it is because he's lost his anchor mm. uh, and he's lost that. And he kills, uh, he kills this fellow. And that murder sets up a situation where, um, explain here, but there is some way that he's able to convince the DA that he wasn't there, that the coat that was left in the uh, in the murder place was actually a duplicate coat, but it really was not his coat. And that's the reason why he lets him off the hook, uh, even though he's the DA. And even though it's, it's known that these people were friends, um, uh, it, that's again, like Chekhov's gun that you know is gonna come back. You know that it's going to play a role again, which is somehow, their relationship is going to be questioned. So what happens is, is that the DA lets him off. He's not, he lets him off for, for that murder. But then it turns out that as he's running for governor, 
um, and a lot of wonderful scenes of 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 where Albany is, and and you know it, it takes you out of Manhattan quite a bit. Uh, at at Belmont, uh, you know, Gable uh, Blackie uh, spies his old girlfriend sitting alone, and Myrna Loy's character, uh, she sort of tells him that he's in trouble, that that Jim is in trouble, that Jim's chances of being elected governor are being undermined by a, 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 a crooked associate that he had fired who was going to spill the beans that he covered up the murder of, of this other fellow for the sake of Blackie. Right. So, of course, what does he do? He's going to, the, the people he loves the most are in, are in trouble. He, he wants his friend to become governor. He doesn't want his friend being uh, derailed. He doesn't want this girl that he still has feelings for, although he doesn't show it. He shows that he's very happy with the fact mm -hmm. that they're getting married. Obviously, it really killed him on the inside. But he says, yeah. So Gable decides, for some strange reason, that he himself is going to take it upon himself uh, to assault this fellow and to, and to murder him in cold blood and to get rid of him. And, uh, of course, here, this is where um, uh, he, he must. Uh, and, and this is where you see friendship being tested because he's the DA. He has his sights on the governor's office. There's still an election to come. And although this is his best friend and he is going to um, not only um, prosecute him, he is going to prosecute him and demand the death sentence for his best friend. And um, it, it's clear that it's with there might have been extenuating circumstances and there might have been a way but as you know in the in, in, in the first of a very stirring of about two or three stirring speeches but at the and I, this is why when you were neil when you told me you were having a little bit of a hard time getting through the movie i said wait till the end neil, and you'll mm -hmm. see and here's where powell as the da makes an incredible speech to the to the jury and he talks about the fact that he, he doesn't deny friendship. He doesn't deny how much this person meant to him. But Dafka, because of that, he has to make a, a, a he has to make an example out of it. He has to show that we have to stop lionizing gangsters. We have to stop romanticizing who they are. We have to realize that that this is something that society has to turn its back on these scalawags. They have to recognize that this is an evil and and and, and things have to be punished. And you have to do that. And it, it, it could be someone that you love and care for, but if you're not going to take that step, then you're not worth to represent anything. And this is why he has to demand the death penalty for his best friend. Um, and it's funny, like in that scene, of course, you know, you know, Gable is like happy about it, right? Yeah. He's drawing pictures, say, yeah. He, he tells his he tells his lawyer, he says, he's going to show you how to win. He says, take some lessons from this guy. This guy knows how to win a case. You'll see. Um, and, and he sort of realizes that he's caught and he's he's ready to go. <clears throat> he's ready to become a carbon for the right thing. Um, and um, you know, there's uh, the next, you know, as he's brought into death row. Um, and, and the movie makes a point of showing that he's a that Blackie is a is a favorite on death row too. Everybody loves him on death row. There, there's a little bit of a racist scene where he actually on his way 
<laughs> on his way to to the to the to the electric chair. Um, he talks to a black uh, character. You might remember that. Yes. And 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 they have an exchange there. Yeah, he tells him, "Don't take any wooden uh, ham bones or something like that," which is like you know. But I think part of what the film was showing is that he was beloved, that he was a person mm, of a great spirit, and he was loved. Now, of course, again, the next aspect, again, spoiler alert, I've spoiled that, anyway, the whole film. <laughs> but basically, the next thing is, will he will he commute his sentence at the last minute? Could he really let him walk to prison? Could he really, right? Um, and by this time, he's been elected governor, and therefore, he could commute his sentence, so he has that power. And the, the film really does a twist here, because even though um, Myrna Roy has turned her back on a life of crime, she appreciates the nobility and, and the glory that she has. She gives her, she gives Wade, she gives her husband an ultimatum. And she says, if you have to, par let him have life in prison. You have to pardon him. And if you don't pardon him, I'm leaving you. And he says, I can't. <laughs> he says, this is what we decided. I can't. In other words, there was no new evidence. <clears throat> in fact, the fact was that that when it was discovered, I believe, that she had been the one to talk to him about it, and that's what she told him, which was the new thing, now he has a motive. He said, up until now, the only way we could perhaps say he, it was a motiveless crime, but now that the motive was clear, it's even more of a murder. And that's what he says to his wife. And he says, I can't, I have to, uh, there can't be any chance here of, 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 of a pardon. And then the film throws another twist in <laughs> because, because as the seconds are ticking away and you see the clock getting to 12, he says, get me my car. We're going to drive to Sing Sing and we're going to, uh, to get there. And as he's about to, you know, as he's walking those last steps, you remember, of course, that uh, he meets him and he says, I, he says, I can't. I can't let you die. I mean, he, he, Blackie is exhibiting such nobility, such greatness, such love, and and and, and it, it, he crumbles, Wade. He crumbles, and he says, "I've got to. I, I have to commute you. I have to commute your sentence. I'm going to." And and this is where again he says, "No." He says, "You better not." He says, "I'm not going to take it. What do you want me to do? You want me to rot here? <laughs> I should." He says, "You have to. You have to live according to your commitments." You're, what you're offering me is not worth it anyway. And he happily goes to his death. Um, and then another, and then one more flip. And this was the one that you said struck you so powerfully. Because yes. this was the one that, especially in light of, you know, who we've had as governor recently, right? And the scandals that were surrounding the governors of New York and and New Jersey has its own uh, uh, you know, history that's quite blotched. This fictitious governor, and again, the whole screenplay, by the way, was completely, you know, crafted out of thin air. You know, it wasn't based one, on... It won an Academy Award. That's right, yeah. Because, story. Right, it was it, it was totally... I, I, I forgot who was the, uh, the the authors, the people who put it together. Arthur um, Caesar. Right, it was some Jewish... There was, it, there was definitely some Jewish. Joseph Mankiewicz, of course, is one of the, the great uh, writers and directors of Hollywood, um, All About Eve and, and many other films, Letters of Three Wives. So the, the, the screenplay adds one other, one other hop. And this was the one I think that 
that resonated so strongly with you, O'Neill, was that even though he, in, the, in, the, in, in the bowels of the prison, where there were no witnesses, um, Wade's character, Powell's character, Wade, says, I have to commute your sentence, and Blackie refuses, that moment of weakness where he wanted to do the wrong thing out of love, yeah. out of friendship, he knows that that's what he was going to do. And he was ready to abuse his power as governor for personal gain, for friendship, for something that on an objective level should not have been done. And once he realizes that he was in a way brought into the governor's seat that way, and he, he wasn't able in, in that moment of weakness to, to be human, he says, I don't deserve to be governor. And he calls a special convocation of the, the, the representatives of the state Senate in Albany, and he announces that he's resigning. He's resigning his government. Can you imagine that today? Considering where we are 90 years later, can, can you imagine? I mean, it's such a, a chivalrous, uh, elevated vision of what it means to be an elected official in the United States. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, and of course, he, but it, even though he, he steps down, that's the reason, somehow then, he, as, he, as he leaves the chambers, he sees that, and why don't you tell us the end, what he sees there at the oh, end. Oh, my favorite part. <laughs> there you he mentioned chivalry. She's waiting for him, and she comes back to him, because all three of the main characters, I think, had a certain integrity, and she now can believe again that he has integrity, even though he didn't let him live, which she had pushed for, she sees his honesty and stepping down that he's not keeping anything for himself. And he's just so honest and so good and so humble that, that, you know, she says it's something, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's something like, you know, you know, anyone would be lucky to be with someone like you. And she's like, could it be me? Could it be me? Could I have that honor? And he says, yes. Some of course. Well, what, what's also great is that even before that, the the movie could be so straightforward about we love him. In other words, both, even though she's married to another man, and even though this is a, another male, there was no sense of of like of, of any sort of anything untoward. Right. This, both of them realized that Blackie, Gable's character, they both loved, and the film could be outright objective about it without confusing anyone because right. you could see three people that loved each other so it, it, that itself is is, is is something which is so pure and so unusual right yes. Usually, you know it, that you can have that happening uh neil i think we both agree is something that you've seen it and you can watch it again and you yes. can see it you can see it again and and and, and relish it in ways yeah. that you didn't relish it before yeah, to me, it's not about the story. It's about the way the story is told. And and, and it's something that you can appreciate uh, uh, over and again. Yeah. Especially, with, totally the, well. especially sure. with the constrictions that we always say, you know, Yitzhak and I talk about the amazing effort that goes into putting something into 90 minutes or to two hours. Mm -hmm. If it's a source material of 500 pages, what to truncate and, and how to be able to, to, to forcefully have a beginning, middle, and end. You know, I, 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 a rabbi friend of mine said to me, look, this is the main thing of every drasha. 
Let it have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You shouldn't. I think uh, that Manhattan melodrama definitely does that. And yeah, I, I, and I assume you know. I would assume a tree grows in Brooklyn does it also. And I guess in a more nuanced and perhaps sophisticated way that America was perhaps ready for as World War II was ending. But I think that both of these films, I think, are sort of like a uh, a good way back into American immigrant um, positive values. Yeah, and, and, and really, in a way, we need a lot more of that. I think today. Because you know immigrants, uh, it, it, it's such a, a hot topic, a negative topic. Um, politics is, is so jaundiced. Um, I think that uh, uh, seeing these films can at least give you a sense of the way maybe it used to be and the way it could still be, perhaps, uh, yeah. if people put their hearts. Would you say that Manhattan melodrama is too corny and idealistic, perhaps? For anyone, in other words, why people wouldn't watch it today? Or just, you know, as a critique of it, particularly the Gable character and then the Myrna Lloyd character. Like, is it too much of a stretch? Could anyone be as good as people in their situations? Were? I agree. They are, it, it was, you don't have that in other films because it is very unrealistic. Who would be uh, playing a, a murderer, a gang? It's it so unrealistic. It, 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 it stretches belief. Right. And you're right. Because of that, it's somewhat cartoonish. I, I would agree. Uh, I think the Myrna Lloyd character is a little bit different. I think that, um, you know, I, I think her, when she says, "I'll leave you if you don't if you don't uh, commute a sentence," I think that's that is pretty realistic. Uh, the fact that she admits that she was wrong afterwards. Yeah, I, I think the character that probably. Is, is the most unrealistic is, you know, again, although the Gable character is, is, is a cartoon, the James Wade, uh, William Powell's character, no. you know, is, is, is in a way, like, uh, you know, his stepping down. Um, yeah. It's something that it's, it's, it's beyond, you know, if you say it's beyond belief, I don't know if I would call it corny because, you know, corny would be, would be like, let's say what it is. Corny is like over sentimental and drudging up what you already have heard many times. Uh-huh. So if we say, and maybe you don't mean corny. Maybe you uh-huh. mean, right? I, I don't know if I would call it corny uh, because it, 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 it's unrealistic. Um, and is it overly sentimental? Perhaps. Um, I, I actually feel that. Um, it, 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 again, movies are an escape, Neil. Right. Both of us know that. Uh, whether whether it's Han Solo, you know, coming back with the Millennium Falcon to 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 to, to, to rescue Princess Leia, or whatever it is, uh, we know that these things are 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 fantasies. Usually, people do not risk their lives, you know, and get into the spaceship. And try to say we're gonna we're gonna try to you know get in there and rescue her and and fight off uh, all the imperial guards of the millions right. of them. That none of that is is realistic. None of that you expect people to do. That is that flight of heroism that you're sitting in the seats in the dark, and and somehow something lifts within you. Right? You can never do that. But when you see that happening on film, your heart races, your your, your endorphins 
to get released in your head because this is great. This is so beautiful. I would never do it, right? Would anybody ever do such a thing like that? Yet, it, right. it, it somehow stirs and, and it, put, it inches you towards being a better person. So right. I, I, I would say the same thing. No politician probably in history, maybe even Lincoln, was as noble as, 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 as Wade was to resign because of something that happened in private, which he never really did anyway. Mm-hmm. But when you see that, you see the, what the human spirit is, it could be, even though it's unrealistic. It's not as beautiful in a way as, as, as a tree grows in Brooklyn, where you, Neil, like you see these type of flawed people all the time. You're seeing almost a, a, a super image of someone. But I think it's, that's part of, you know, that's part of why films can, can create some of this. It's, yeah. it's, it's a fable. And that's probably maybe the best way to say it. Manhattan melodrama is a fable. And A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is, is a truth. Yeah. And maybe that's what it is. Fables and truth. <laughs> Manhattan and Brooklyn. I think that's a great uh, way. I think that's a great way to end. Neil, you've been great. It's so wonderful to have uh, a person who, who cares and, and is interested. And uh, we'll do it again. All right? Yes. Watch your step on the way out. So we'll catch you next time. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.